0: matthew twenty eight one through twenty now, after the sabbath toward the da- toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and other and the other Mary went to see the tomb and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the government's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, "'All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.' teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord.
1: All right. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. And we are in week two of a four-week series that we're calling Raised, um, Doubting the Resurrection. And over the course of this series, what we're doing is trying to, in essence, push into our doubt. Last week, we, we kind of explored how doubt can actually be the faithful companion of faith. If we pull it out into the light, if we actually um, let it lead us to the right questions, it allows us to identify where we need to learn more and grow more and identify more where we need to study more, right? When we hide it, it becomes a hidden weakness in our faith, something that we're afraid of and that's something that, that ultimately weakens us, right? Doubt can be a faithful companion of faith. Um, but we also know that we have some that, that doubt really is the barrier to faith, There there are a lot of things to doubt here. If you doubt the resurrection, if you doubt the message of Christ, um, I'm not surprised. At the heart of our faith is a guy who didn't stay dead. I mean, that's a pretty crazy claim. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't see this every day. Jesus rose from the dead. And I I understand if you find this hard to believe, you're actually in very good company. It's always been hard to believe. Take a look in our passage. I want to read a, a few verses. Starting in verse 11, Matthew 28 is great because it has a little bit of everything. And in 11 through, through 15, um, we see how the skeptics kind of deal with this. While they were going, that is the original witnesses, the women who had just witnessed the resurrection, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So they come with this crazy story of this glowing dude who shows up, this angel that just rolls away the stone. Remember, these are Roman soldiers um, who have absolutely no framework for understanding what they're seeing, you know. Um, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. Not a great story, honestly, could have probably cost them their lives if it had gotten to the right people, but probably a better story than talking about a glowing dude rolling away the stone. At least um, one makes them sound inept instead of crazy. So they take the money and um, they spread the story. Um, And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they've got plenty of money to keep bribing people. Um, So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews until this day. So what's going on here? Simply this. The chief priests and the, and the Pharisees don't believe in resurrection. And so when the evidence comes to them that, in fact, Jesus was raised from the dead, they found an alternative explanation. They found a different way to explain it. Now, sometimes we're a little bit guilty, I think, in our modern day with our internet and iPhones and... and um, homogenized culture. I think we're a little guilty, honestly, of a little cultural and chronological arrogance when it comes to looking at history. I think sometimes we think of these people back then as being somewhat primitive, right? Man, they were so gullible. It was easy for them to believe this stuff, not like us today. We have the internet. We're never gullible. We're never taken in, right? They, those people back then, man, they just believed stuff like this. In reality, that, that actually shows a fairly high level of cultural ignorance during this period of time, there were two predominant cultures. There was the Greek culture um, that was kind of the overarching culture of the time, and then there was the subculture of the Jews. Um, the, the Jews were under Roman domination and under Greek culture, uh, but they had a subculture of their, of their own, and Jesus was born a Jew in the Jewish world, and so these two cultures are at play. Now, here's the thing. The Greeks um, didn't believe in bodily resurrection, period it would not have been easily received by the broader culture. They believed in the continuance of the soul, but not of the body. In fact, the predominant philosophy of the day, um, uh, Platonism, said that basically the soul is striving to be free of the body. The, The spiritual is striving to be free of the physical so that it can become all that it was meant to be. A physical resurrection was a paradox to them. It made no sense, right? Now, the Jews at least in their Old Testament, they had references to resurrection. There was, for them, culturally, reason to believe in the resurrection. But a large portion of the people, by the time um, Jesus comes along, don't believe in resurrection anymore. They were led by a group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees basically took um, things like the resurrection in the Old Testament and, and meta- turned them into metaphors. Right? These things don't really mean what, they, what what the others mean them to say. There was a smaller uh, another group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the traditionalists. They did believe in a resurrection, physical, bodily resurrection, but they saw one resurrection happening at the end of the age. An isolated physical resurrection in the middle of the story made absolutely no sense to them. The idea that one man would be raised instead of all the faithful Jews to go into the ultimate kingdom of David made absolutely no sense. No sense. So what I want you to hear is that this message was going into an environment that was not primed to receive it. This was not a message that was going to be easily received or easily believed. And so when we see them coming up with alternative explanations, it only makes sense right? And Matthew says in verse um, 15 there that, that this, this story about the, the disciples stealing the body still circulates to this day. And, and if, that means, of course, what, the day he wrote this. He wrote this about 25 years after uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. So that story was still being circulated 25 years later. The reality is here we are around 2,000 years later, and this story is still alive and well. I, I still have people tell me, as I sit down to talk with them, that the disciples just stole the body away. This is still a very active um, alternative story. Here's the thing, you guys. If it was confusing for them in the first century, if it was confusing for them and they actually lived in the time and in the place, how are we supposed to be able to make any sense of this stuff? If it was confusing for them, how are we supposed to have any kind of certainty? Here's the thing. There's no doubt something happened. Everyone agrees something happened. Exactly what is the key point of debate? And as I talk with my unbelieving friends, I hear some common themes as to why they don't believe Jesus was raised from the dead, some, some prevalent doubts or alternative explanations as to what happened. I've had a lot of conversations over the last 28 years as a believer, and, and, and I've heard, I think, almost all of it. Of course, there's the same one that was spread during Matthew's time. The disciples stole the body and faked the resurrection. Well, there's a little more. The Romans stole the body to get back at the Jews. Aliens stole the body to mess with earthlings. No joke. Uh, Jesus had a body double, right? Like modern day Hollywood, right? A stunt double, somebody who went to the cross and died in his place and then he showed up afterwards. Jesus didn't really die. He was crucified, but but he didn't really die. He swooned, kind of passed out, and the disciples revived him later. Jesus didn't even exist. He was just made up. The disciples stole ideas from pagan myth gods like Mithras and and Dionysius and applied them to Jesus, just made it all up. Jesus' disciples were master liars and manipulators, Jesus' disciples were uneducated and easily duped. Jesus' disciples were deluded, emotional, and overcome. At the end, you guys, is it really just an issue that I believe this and you believe that, and there's really no way to know? At the end of the day, we just have to decide what we want to believe and, and respect each other's decisions. Is there evidence that actually should be playing a role here substantial enough to cause us to doubt our doubts now i can't give you a complete apologetic this morning a complete proof of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, there are extensive scholarly works written on this subject by people that are way smarter than me. Uh, and what we've done to help you dig into this is if you go to our website and click on the raised banner, it will give you a list of online and print resources that we recommend you read, dig into, to help you explore this stuff. And some of those are going to be more than scholarly and technical enough for the geekiest of you, okay? And, and I guarantee they'll help you as you dig in and ask some questions. But what I want to do this morning is I want to address what I see as the foundational issue, the doubt that is under all other doubts. And the foundational doubt is this, you just can't trust the Bible. When you pick this up and you read clear historical accounts, you just can't trust it. It's a collection of legends. It just isn't trustworthy. It was, it was changed, it was modified, it was made up whatever. You just can't trust it. See, once you say the historical documents are unreliable, you're free to put in whatever meaning you want and take out whatever meaning is most relevant to you, to take the parts you like and to leave the parts you don't. See, Here's the thing, you guys. How do we know Jesus even lived? We're talking 2,000 years ago. How do we know Jesus even lived, let alone that He was crucified, and let alone that he was raised. Our goal is to look back at the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus, but how can we know anything about something that happened so long ago? Well, I want to give you a little lesson in how we do history. Um, How do we know anything about the past? I mean, really, how do we know anything about the past? How do we know the Cardinals won the World Series in 2006? How do we know the Cubs won it in like 1402, right? Um, how, how do you know? Sorry, Cubs fans. How do you, you know, um, about your, your great, great grandfather? How do you know he even existed? How do you know that? Right? You never met him. How do you know he existed? Well, you can say, Steve, I know he existed because my family told me about him. My grandmother told me about her dad. My mom told me about her grandfather. My uncle told me about his grandfather. And they told me about the business he started. And, and, and they told me about the life that he lived. And, um, and I can see the business. And I trust these people. And not only that, I'm physically here, <laughs> right? I'm here. That means I had a great-grandfather, right? That's just proof. I can't go back and, and prove to you my great-grandfather lived. But I can show you evidence. I can show you evidence that is persuasive and, to me, conclusive, right? See, what's happening when you go through that process, you're actually going through a process called historical analysis. You are asking key questions about information that help you evaluate whether history is really history, about what you think you know about the past is actually logical and reasonable to believe about the past. And there are key questions you're asking. The first is, are the sources of information reliable? Well, my sources of information are my grandmother and my mom and, and my uncle. And I trust them and, and, and they have proven themselves trustworthy. And, and so, yes, the, the source is reliable. Are the sources consistent? Well, yeah, they, they all told me that my grandfather, great grandfather's name was, or great great was the same name, right? They told me about the business he started. They, they told me about what he was like and what he didn't like. And, and their stories are very consistent. Are they confirmed by outside evidence? Well, yes, the business still exists. I can walk there. I can go in. Not only that, I'm here, physically here. That is physical evidence, outside evidence that He existed and that He was who we think He was. This is the process of historical analysis. What do we see when we apply these questions to the New Testament? All right, we're going to get more teach you than preach you here. And I'm warning you, I'm going to geek out a little bit on you. I kind of enjoy this history stuff. And so I'm going to throw a lot at you and we're going to jump into warp speed. Uh, So don't try and write it all down. Just try to follow along. So first of all, is the New Testament reliable? Is the New Testament reliable? The New Testament, um, really, when we talk about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, this is our primary source. You have more information right here Um, than anywhere else, especially the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, primary source for knowing about who Jesus was, um, how He died, and, and, and whether He rose again, right? So can we trust that the New Testament we're reading is, in fact, the New Testament that the apostles wrote? In other words, when we read Matthew 28, can we trust that the words we're reading on this page are, in fact, the same words That Matthew, the real Matthew, with pen and quill wrote down. How do we know if what we're looking at is real? To answer that, historians have to use what's called the bibliographic test. And what that means is we're simply looking at the documents we have. And there's two questions we look how many do we have? And when are they dated? How many do we have? And, and really, how close are they to the actual events, right? If, if, if we only have one document and it's dated 1942 and it's telling us about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, that's a lot of time, right, for oral history. That's a lot of time where we have no documented evidence for, for how much it's changed or if the story is accurate. Um, a document like that's not going to have a lot of authority, right? Um, now, here's the thing. When we go to ancient history we have a difficult time actually finding documents. And this makes sense because for the documents to exist, first of all, they have to be written, right? Somebody has to look at the events around them and say, it is worthwhile writing these things down. Not only am I going to write them down, but I'm going to give them to people. Then other people have to say, what you wrote was important enough for me to copy and give to others, right? And so historians would write something down. It would then be copied and given to others, and those people would copy it and give it to others. Now, most of these documents, simply by the passage of time, are destroyed. So the fact that we have any documents is is fairly remarkable. Something had to be very widely distributed for us to have from antiquity documents um, preserved, right? And the ones we have are tremendously valuable. So take a look at this this graph, because I want you to see how the New Testament compares to other sources of trusted ancient historical data. These are some of the most significant sources of historical data, and each is considered quite reliable. Now, if you've ever studied ancient Civ in college, you've studied these guys. You may not have known it, uh, but you did, right? Um, Thucydides, for example, uh, wrote about the Peloponnesian Wars, um, which took place in around 411 BC between Athens and Sparta. He's dubbed the father of scientific history because when he wrote his history, he didn't talk about the gods having a war, the disagreement in the heavens. He basically just wrote about the people and what they did, right? He looked at the data and, and he recorded the data, right? We have eight existing documents that were copies of his originals, right? We don't have those originals. Those were long lost, but, the, but when people saw them, they saw they were important, they copied them, they distributed them. We have, we have eight existing documents, right? Julius Caesar wrote the history of the Gallic Wars. These are critical wars from 58 to 50 BC that paved the way for him to become the ruler of the Roman Empire. His is the primary and often only source for much of this history. Um, We have 10 manuscripts from his writings. From Aristotle's Poetics, we have 49 manuscripts. From Homer's Iliad, many of you read uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey at some point in your literature class, 643 documents. When we get to the New Testament, we find that we have around 5,600 manuscript or manuscript fragments. Why in the world do we have so many for the New Testament? How do we explain that? I mean, that's a ridiculously large number compared to other ancient documents um, that purport, purport to be historical. It's because these letters as soon as they were written, were treasured. As soon as they were written, the people that received them considered them to be Scripture, to be sacred, to be valuable. And that meant as soon as they received them, they protected them, and they immediately copied them and distributed them. These were documents that were treasured, copied, and distributed. And as a result, um, we have a a tremendous bibliographic pool of data to take a look at. So it's clear the New Testament has a substantial bibliographic record. There are a lot of documents that we can look to. But the second part of the test is important, and that's the chronological test. How close are these documents to the actual events that they describe? That's important because the larger the gap, um, the more chance that they've been changed or modified, the the greater chance that somebody has altered the contents or that the people that wrote it uh, simply didn't have enough familiarity with the events to describe them accurately. Well, again, let's compare the New Testament to the documents I've already described. Thucydides wrote in 411 BC. The earliest manuscript we have comes from 900 AD. It's a 1,300-year gap. Um, And yet we are relatively confident that the contents of these letters were accurate and authentic. It doesn't mean everything he wrote was true, but it does mean that we are relatively confident that what we have is an actual representation of what he wrote. Caesar's Gallic Wars... Uh, written sometime after 50 B.C., oldest, oldest manuscript is uh, around 900 A.D., you're looking at a 950-year difference. Aristotle's Poetics, written in 343 B.C., oldest manuscript dates from about 400 B.C. Um, or excuse me, from um, uh, 1100 A.D., 1400-year difference. Homer's Iliad is written in 900 B.C., oldest manuscript is from 400 B.C., uh, about a 500-year difference. New Testament, The New Testament is actually made up of a number of documents. It's not a single document itself. A number of authors who wrote a number of letters between 50 A.D. and 100 A.D. Uh, Jesus, remember, was crucified around A.D. 33. And so during that period of time, we see the letters of the New Testament written. The oldest manuscript we have is dated around 120 A.D. And that means even if you compare it to the earliest manuscript that was written, we're looking at about a 70-year difference. This is remarkably early and remarkably important. That means that the documents that we have were actually circulating, while many of the first generation of Christians were still alive. People who could have easily refuted the lies and corrected the errors, and would have. Remember, these documents were cherished, they were loved, they were memorized as soon as they were received. And so people would have come to recognize if somebody were altering it or changing it, this would have been the worst period of time to actually try to do that, right? But before we can say that these documents are truly reliable to what the original authors wrote, we need to look at one more test, and that's the test of consistency. We have all of these documents. We can date them to a very early period of time. um, But how do they compare with each other? Since these manuscripts were copied many at different times and in different places by different scribes, um, it can end up being like the telephone game. Now, remember how this worked, right? One guy wrote the letter. He sent it to, say, Paul sent his letter to Galatia. The Galatians valued and treasured that letter, so they had a scribe transcribe it and send it to surrounding regions, right? Those surrounding regions copied it and sent it out to other surrounding regions, and out and out and out it goes. The way communication normally works is that the more something is copied, the farther it is sent out, the more it is changed. And sometimes those subtle changes right at the beginning can become major changes farther down the line. When I was a high school English teacher, I used to play this thing called the telephone game with my students to help them understand the dynamics of communication. And the way it would work is I would take, uh, go to one side of the room and I would basically give a simple message to a student. Right? And that message might be something like, Mr. Mizell likes chocolate fondue fountains. Right? Something that's going to be a little bit weird, but fairly easy to remember. Okay? And then my goal is, I'm, I want you to whisper this to the person behind you then they're going to whisper it to the person behind them, and it's going to go all the way around the room until it finally gets to the other side. And I'll give you guys an award if you can keep this thing unchanged. Invariably, it would get to the other side, and it would be something like, Mr. Mizell wants to sit in a hot tub full of pudding, right? It was fundamentally different. Something that was true and innocent was changed into something that could cost me my job. So how do the New Testament documents measure up in this area? Right? How do they measure up? When we see them being pushed out from, from person to person, uh, from scribe to scribe. How do they measure up? They measure up remarkably well. There's only a one to four vari- percent variation in the, in the text, which means that they are 96 to ninety nine percent identical. And, and the differences that we see in the manuscripts, honestly, are, are fundamentally small, like spelling mistakes or other very minor differences. There are no major historical or doctrinal issues that are brought into question by these variances. How do we explain the accuracy? How do we explain that, that these texts, while they were spread and they were so quickly copied and so quickly distributed, would remain so unchanged? Well, we can get spiritual and say, well, God protected them, and I wouldn't argue with that. But honestly, I think there's a very reasonable explanation. Remember that, that these things were treated as Scripture from the moment they were written which meant that scribes would treat them as Scripture as well. You couldn't just go to the local Xerox machine and copy things. People had to hand copy them. Scribes were trained in doing this, and they had specific rules that guided them as they copied Scripture. And very simply, it was a no-tolerance rule. If there was a mistake in the copy, they destroyed what they wrote and started over, even if it was on the last line of the last page. That way they could reduce variation. So they protected what they were given. So here's the thing, you guys, we have an incredibly high degree of confidence that the documents that we are reading here are in fact the documents that were written by the apostles themselves. That when we're digging in and looking at these words, we're actually looking at the very words the apostles themselves chose to write down. That Matthew 28 is in fact um, what Matthew himself described as he sat there wrote. But there's a second kind of internal consistency we need to pay attention to before we can call this trustworthy. We can say that it is, in fact, trustworthy to say that it is from Matthew and it's actually what he wrote. We know Matthew wrote it. But the next question is, can we trust what Matthew says? We know Matthew wrote it, but can we trust that Matthew's telling the truth? Right? This is where a lot of times my my unbelieving friends and I will park company because they're like, "Okay, okay, okay. I get it. The documents are reliable. But I don't trust the guys. They had an agenda. They weren't just writing because they felt like it. They weren't just writing because they were unbiased observers. They believed this stuff. And because they believed it, it skewed the way they wrote it. And they 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 just kind of went over into mythology. They just went over into legend. They they just kind of You know, they wanted it to be true so badly that they lied, or inadvertently, or or maybe they were more political like today. They they misspoke, right? Um, So how do we know that the documents are um, actually consistent with what they claim to be? Because they claim to be history. History. They actually claim to be history. The authors are, in fact, telling us, we're telling you the events, the actual facts of the story. At certain points, they actually come out and say that, right? I'm trying to give you a faithful account of what took place. So do we, in fact, find evidence that shows their history? If they claim to be history, do we see things inside that would create an internal consistency with that claim? See, it doesn't do us any good to have the original accurate documents if the authors lied about the events, So how can we determine if they were lying? Is there any way to know whether or not they were telling the truth? Well, I think there are some things that we can look at in terms of content and timing that will help us determine whether or not they were, in fact, telling the truth. Let's take a look at the timing, first of all. Here's the thing. The timing of these documents is too soon and too close to the actual place to be myth. They're written too soon, and they were too close to the actual place of the events. You guys, this is incredibly significant. Since we know that our documents were not written hundreds of years later, hundreds of miles away, they were actually written in the place, the events took place, during the time the people were alive, the eyewitnesses were still there. We know that these documents would have been scrutinized and tested. People could have very easily said, huh, I better go talk to so-and-so. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, in fact, directs people. Jesus appeared to 500 brothers at one time. Right? not to mention the sisters, so probably 1,000 people over in Jerusalem. They're still alive, he says. Go talk to them. So, so they're actually appealing to people to actually go talk and get it verified. What that means is that these documents were in circulation with the very people who could disprove the events they're describing. The eyewitnesses were still alive. And this is what we know, not guess, No. The early church exploded in Jerusalem, right after the resurrection. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you have to find some way to explain that. The early church exploded, 3,000 people becoming believers in a day, and then it continued to expand at this exponential rate. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you have to find some way to explain that in an environment where resurrection is not commonly believed, in an environment where honestly this message is going to be moving out into hostile cultural territory. How do you explain that explosive growth? That's the kind of thing we would expect to see if it's true, right? It is too close to the events. These documents were written at the very time and at ground zero of the events themselves. Secondly, the content's too controversial and culturally offensive. To be myth. The content is simply too controversial and culturally offensive. See, if you're trying to tell a lie, if you're trying to start a new myth, if you're trying to promote a new legend, what you would do is take a look at the cultural currents of your day, and you would try to tap your story into those currents. Think about your own experience on Facebook. You can probably tell me what the cultural currents of today are, what the topics are that are really the hot-button topics, and you know what side you want to be on if you want to get people to agree with you, right? And if you were trying to create a myth, you would begin ultimately by tapping into those cultural places of commonality because you're going to get everybody going like this before you give them the information they haven't heard yet, right? But that's not what we see in the New Testament. We see the exact opposite. I'll give you a few examples. Matthew 28 tells us who the first witnesses of the resurrected Christ were. Did you catch that? Did you see who the first witnesses of the resurrected Christ was? It was a group of women one of whom was a former prostitute. So we're talking about people that were already marginalized in society and then one that was even farther marginalized to the point of being um, offensive. Now, why is it important that women were the the first witnesses? And, And why should we pay attention to that? Because women during this period of time had no social standing. They had no social power. They couldn't even testify in a court of law. If there was a crime and they were the only witness, they couldn't go to a court and speak. And it wasn't because they were trying to protect the delicacy of their women. I know this is culturally offensive, but it's the reality of that time. They considered women fundamentally unreliable. They considered them over-emotional and ultimately unreliable. And so it was culturally offensive for women to, in fact, be the first witnesses of the resurrection. Let me ask you a question. Why would Matthew say that women were the first witnesses of the resurrection? Unless it was true. He wasn't a social crusader. You know what I'm saying? Like, like this wasn't him like, I'm an egalitarian. We're going to fight for women's rights. That's not what's going on here, right? This is him basically saying, I know at one of the most critical junctions of the story, And Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He knows he's writing to Jews, and the Jews are not going to receive this well. And one of the most critical points of the story, he's going to offend the very people he's writing to, but he does it anyway. The only compelling explanation I can find for that is very simply, it is true. And as a historian, he had no choice. He had to simply record what occurred. This isn't the only example. There's tons of them, you guys, tons I mean, what happened to Jesus the night before he was crucified? The anointed one, the Messiah. We want to describe this guy as as God's Messiah, right? The one that we want to trust and believe in. What's he doing the night before he's crucified? He's weeping in the garden, sweating great drops of blood, pleading with God if there's any way for this cup to pass from me. Let it happen. If you're trying to inspire people that this is God's king, is that really how you want to portray him? Show him broken? and weeping in the garden. Believers today have a hard time with that passage. The only reason something like that is included is because it's true. The disciples wrote the the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? They were the guys that walked with Jesus. Mark didn't, but but he got his information from Peter who who did, right? And and, and these guys, when we read their Gospels, look at how they describe themselves, The disciples don't come off as these great heroes. (laughs) They come off as bumbling, selfish, competitive, and honestly, mostly confused. When you read through the Gospels, that's really what you walk away with. These guys were just walking around in a daze most of the time. Like they had no idea what Jesus was going to do next or why he did what he just did, right? Why, if these guys, the disciples are going to become the apostles, the founders, the leaders of the early church, wouldn't you want to portray them in a way that inspires confidence? Would you really want a betrayal out there that makes you think, these guys are dumber than I am? Really? The only reason we can give that I think authentically explains it is that it's true. These guys were compelled to write it down because it was history. They weren't trying to weave a myth. They were trying to recount events. So internal consistency, what we find is that There's material here that that ultimately um, is hard to swallow, that the original readers would have had a hard time digesting, they would have been culturally offended by. But it's the kind of thing that we expect when we realize it's true. So here's the thing. Our documents are reliable. We can trust them. We can say that with with confidence, that they're consistent with each other and with what they claim to be. So so when we have this, we can trust that this material is, in fact... um, What it claims to be, we can trust that it's actual historical documents written by the very people who witnessed that history. Now, there's a third test that historians use to determine if something is good history, and that is the the um, the voice of outside confirmation. Are there outside sources that confirm this material to be true? And are there concurrent historical events that we can look to that are only explained if it's true? So, looking back, do we find that there are others that weren't in that circle? Right? If this is our only evidence. Um, then, then, then it's like, okay, then we're only listening to the people that were inside. Were there Jewish historians or, or Roman or Greek historians that also spoke of these things? If they, We would expect that there would be, and that there would be some overlap. Now, these guys aren't going to write about it the same way because they weren't in it and they didn't see it as closely, but they are going to write about it in the way that it overlapped what they were, what they were encountering, right? So what do we find outside of the New Testament that confirms what we see inside the New Testament? Actually, quite a bit. Jewish historian uh, Josephus um, wrote extensively, Roman historians, pagan or Greek historians. I'm not going to get into all of this and I'm not going to unpack all of this thoroughly. What I do want to point out is that it's important to note that the information in the New Testament is confirmed by Jewish, Roman, and pagan history of that time. These were contemporaries of the New Testament writers. They were writing at the same time the New Testament writers were writing. From different places and from different perspectives. These guys were not followers of Christ. Um Thallus, for example, wrote Navy 52, 25 years after the life, the, the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, right? About the same time that our first New Testament documents were being written. Right? These guys were were contemporaries with the New Testament writers. Now, when we look at these things, using only these outside sources, only These sources um, from from Greek and Roman and, and Jewish sources, unbelievers outside of the faith, just looking at these things, we would learn the following facts about Jesus. We would learn that Jesus was from Nazareth, that he lived a wise and virtuous life, that he was crucified in Judea under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, at Passover time, being considered a Jewish king, He was believed by his disciples to have died and risen from the dead three days later. His enemies acknowledged that he performed unusual feats. His disciples multiplied rapidly, spreading as far as Rome. His disciples lived moral lives and worshiped Christ as God. You could ascertain all of that without ever even opening the New Testament, just by looking at secular historical sources. So clearly, the New Testament is confirmed by outside sources. There's ample outside evidence to assert with confidence that the events of the New Testament did, in fact, happen. In fact, you guys, this really isn't that big of a debate. Israeli scholar Shlomo Pines, who is not a believer, writes, "...even the most bitter opponents of Christianity never expressed any doubt as to Jesus having really lived." World historian Will Durant notes that no Jew or Gentile from the first century ever denied the existence of Jesus. There's one last important test that we need to take a look at, though. Is the New Testament also confirmed by external concurrent historical events? And can those events either confirm the resurrection or be explained in alternative ways? Is there history that only makes sense because the New Testament is history? And I believe um, yes. I mean, there are specific things that we can point to. First of all, the conversion of of James and Paul. Now, these are guys that you may or may not be familiar with. James was actually Jesus' brother. <laughs> right? Jesus grew up in a family and apparently had a rather unstellar childhood because none of his family were followers. None of them followed him as disciples. In fact, during Jesus' ministry, we read accounts of his family showing up and trying to drag him home. They thought he had gone off the deep end. They thought he'd kind of gone crazy. James would have been one of those guys showing up, basically being like Jesus, man. Chill. You know what I'm saying? Back off the whole Messiah thing. Let's go back home and talk, right? James was not a follower of Jesus. He didn't believe, right? Paul was not a follower of Jesus. His name was Saul at the time. He was a Pharisee, and he hated Christianity. He was a devout Jew. He loved Judaism. He had studied in Judaism. He was more devout than, than any, anybody else. I mean, he was this rising star in, 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 in the Pharisee world, in Judaism. He had no reason to want to believe. And yet both these guys like that, on a dime, not only became believers, but became leaders in the church. James became a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Paul became the primary missionary of the Christian faith into the Gentile world. How do you explain the sudden, radical life change of these two guys? Let me give you a comparison. Um, Bart Ehrman is um, one of the leading and probably most read skeptics of our day. He's written a number of books, um, basically trying to to re-explain the events of early biblical history. And the way he explains um, the resurrection, uh, the appearances of the resurrection, is is he says they were hallucinations. And then he gives a thorough documentation of, of basically how people can have hallucinations. When somebody is devout and really wants to see something, and they're praying and they're fasting and they're having this religious experience, they can take the data, the input that they're receiving, and hallucinate and see what they desperately want to see. In fact, there are examples of group hallucinations, of people that are coming together in in devout religious experiences, and in that moment, they all see something, and they all start talking about it, and they come to interpret it in the same way. And, And he would say that is what explains all of the resurrection appearances after Christ. How does that explain James and Paul? These guys didn't want to see Jesus. They didn't want to have their lives changed. They were not devout followers. They were skeptics. They were enemies. See, in the Gospels, we ultimately see an explanation, and that is they were both visited by a resurrected Christ. (sighs) When Jesus rises from the dead and shows up, it kind of changes things, right? So when he comes and visits James, he's like, hey, bro, let's have a meal. You know, let's sit down and talk. Shake my hand, man. Go ahead. Touch me. Right? We know that's how he did. He touched people. He ate with them. He talked with them. So he shows up. Tell me that's not going to change James's life. Perfect explanation. Radical. Instantaneous. 180 change, right? When, when we have the account for Paul of, uh, Saul of Sarsus, right? He's, he's riding to Tarsus and, and this bright light shows up and knocks him off his horse, and he's like, who are you? It's like, hey, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Tell you what, I got a plan for you. You're, you're going to become mine. Man, like that. Like that. They become believers. How are you going to explain their conversion without that? You've got to find a reasonable way. If you're, if you're going to say that, that all of these things were simply hallucinations, you still need to find a legitimate, reasonable way to explain the conversion of people like that who were radically opposed to the message at the very time when it could have been most easily disproved. These events make perfect sense, though, if the resurrection actually happened. What about the remarkable unity of message and mission in the early church? When you consider the radical unity of, of the message and the mission of the early church, we find out that Jesus appeared after He was raised from the dead. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to 500 brethren, not counting the cistern, right? So, I don't know, a thousand people or so. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to James. And He appeared to Paul. If Jesus actually appeared to all these people, we would expect them to walk away with similar experiences and the same message. If Jesus, in all of these different situations, appeared to all these different people, we would expect them to walk away with similar experiences and the same message, which we do, right? We don't hear in one case that Jesus appeared as a floating shadow, in another case as a disembodied voice, and in another case as an image on toast, Right, He met people. He talked with them. He had meals with them. He, he interacted with them. The accounts are all radically similar. He showed up in his body and was like human with them and then gave each one of them the same message. And as a result, they walked away moving in the same direction. The unity of the early church is one of the greatest miracles you're ever going to see. It's, it's insane when you think about it. A message went out, a brand new thing started, this thing called Christianity, and you're getting together, not just Jews and Gentiles, but, but, but Gentiles from all, all these different Greek streams of culture and Jews who are Hellenistic and Orthodox. And, and yet they come out with a single message that unifies them, protects the movement of the early church through, it should have divided into at least two, if not a dozen different sects within the first 25 years. And yet we find there was a remarkable unity of mission and message that can only be explained if Jesus actually showed up and gave each one of them the message that drove them. See, if it was a hallucination, think about it this, you guys, if it was a hallucination, I would see what I wanted to see. And and the message I heard would be my message to myself. I would be putting the words into Jesus's mouth to give back to me. And if that were the case, what I heard from Jesus would probably be pretty different from what you heard from Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like if they were all hallucinations, when we all got back together. We'd probably be like, oh yeah, and then we'd go all our different ways. Why? Because our visions were shaped by ourselves. The unity ultimately indicates a single messenger. It'd be like if all of us tried to get into a band and, um, and we each individually tried to tune our instruments and then show up at the same moment and play the same exact chord. What are the chances we could do that even if we were the best musicians? See, the best way to tune everyone to a single chord is to get them all in one place, strike that chord, and then let them tune their instruments to that chord in that place together. A single messenger explains the unity of a single message. The harmony of the early church is evidence of a risen Savior. Now, aren't there differences in the four Gospels, though? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Absolutely there are. But I actually would say that that's part of the proof. I would actually expect that, right? You have four authors writing to four different audiences um, and speaking from their own experience. It's like four people who witness a car wreck. You got four people on the corners, right? One person's gonna be like, hey, there was a cat crossing the road. The other's gonna be like, I don't know anything about a cat, but man, the sun was sure in his eyes. Well, I don't know anything about that, but he was distracted by his phone, Fourth guy's going to be like, I don't know about any of that. I was distracted by the clown who was juggling chainsaws in the park. You know what I'm saying? Like, like each one of them is going to focus on and see different details, but they're all seeing the same exact thing. And we would expect there to be a certain level of conformity in their stories and a certain level of difference. That's actually a sign of authenticity. Um, when I was a principal... Sometimes I would have groups of students get into trouble and I would call them in my office individually and I would have them tell me what happened. And one of the things that I was looking for, honestly, was a certain level of discrepancy in their stories. If they all showed up and told me the same exact story, (laughs) using the same exact words, you know what that told me? Collusion, right? These guys are guilty. They got together before they got to my office. They got their story straight to the point they're even using the same words to tell it. Now, if they came to my office and they each told basically the same story but told it from different perspectives, with different details, using different language, that was much more authentic um, and much more trustworthy. When we read through the Gospels, that's what we hear, four different voices telling one story with a fundamental um, unity and a necessary difference. So we see, honestly, I think that, that they they... Work together at certain points. I believe Matthew worked off of, I think Mark's gospel was written first and Matthew referenced it. I don't think that was a problem. I think he was actually using it to supplement his own experiences, right? Because Mark's gospel essentially came from Peter's experiences. I, I, I don't see a problem with that, right? It's the way things actually work. And there were, they didn't have any problem having differences in their gospels. Why? Because they were telling the truth. All right, so finally we see evidence in the commitment of the first witnesses themselves. You guys, we can't overestimate this. These guys died for their message. Every one of the apostles died a martyr's death without recanting or changing their message in any way. See, this is exactly what we would expect if they saw the risen Savior. Why? Because if you see Jesus who rose from the dead saying, I am the resurrection and the life, it kind of gives you bravery in the face of death. Right, It allows you to move forward with confidence. If they were working off a lie or off of some vague hallucinatory experience, I seriously doubt every single one of them would have, with the same fortitude and strength, faced the same persecution, the same suffering, and ultimately the same, uh, although their, their uh, martyrdoms were different, but it was the same. They were all gory and brutal deaths. And yet we see them standing absolutely convinced, unwavering. If they were lying, I just don't think we would see that. If they were hallucinating, I just don't think we would see that, right? You have to find a way to explain these things. If you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, you have to find a way to explain these things. Not one of them are canted. To say that the disciples turned into a brilliant conspiracy makers overnight, that in the course of five days, in the midst of all of the craziness of Jesus dying, they were able to get together, come up with a conspiracy, agree on commonality of language and focus, and they did it so well that it unified the early church through the next 50 years of growth, takes more faith than it does to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. All right, wrapping this up. The New Testament, I think we've demonstrated, is reliable, it is consistent, and it is confirmed by history outside of itself. It is compelling, right? It is reliable and trustworthy history. If you discount the New Testament as history, you have to discount everything from ancient civilization and honestly from modern history as well. You have to erase everything we know about history. Now, here's the thing. There's plenty of evidence here to cause you to doubt your doubts. Plenty of evidence here that I think um, compels you um, to look at this, but we all know this isn't just about the evidence, right? The chief priests saw the empty tomb, but they remained unconvinced, so much so that they actually lied to cover it up and felt justified in doing so because they were convinced they would find, up, find eventually a better explanation. Why? Because no one is changed by an empty tomb. People are only changed by a risen Savior. And this is probably the most powerful testimony to the truth of the resurrection. You guys, it is by far the most compelling argument for me. This stuff changes people's lives. Like radical, fundamental change. Like the kind of stuff that happens when dead people come to life when people who have no hope are suddenly born into a world of hope, people that are, that are broken and hurting and separated from love are suddenly united with the source of love himself, that kind of radical love, right? When we look at Paul, Paul didn't just stop persecuting the church and start preaching Jesus. When we look at Paul, we see a man who was fundamentally changed in his character, A guy who went from from self-righteous judgmentalism to a guy who was so broken in love for others that he gladly suffered and ultimately died that they might be blessed. How do you explain that kind of character change? I know my own life. I went from a a, a rebel, selfish, self-centered, prideful, and at age 17, man, the gospel gripped my heart, and it was so radically transformative. I honestly was not the same person I was. The people who knew me before no longer knew me. It was such a fundamental, radical change in my life. You know why? Because we're not just learning ancient history. We're not just talking about a guy who rose from the dead. We are talking about Jesus who is alive. And when you meet him, he changes you. The New Testament, when you read it, no one said, go look at the empty tomb. That was never a proof in the New Testament. What they always said was go talk to the people who actually encountered a raised Savior. Today, I don't walk around saying, you guys, look at the reliability of the New Testament. That's what is uh, foundational. That's what convinces you. What I do say is you don't have to leave your brain at the door to believe this stuff. It's okay to ask hard questions and to dig in. It's okay to struggle with doubt. But if you really want to know the power of resurrection, talk to someone whose life has been radically transformed. Somebody who doesn't just know about Jesus, but actually knows Jesus. Somebody who is actually having their life radically transformed by the presence of a risen Savior. Because we're talking about Jesus who is alive. And here's the thing, you guys. God wants to tell a better story for your life than you would tell for yourself. He wants to tell a story of resurrection, a story that goes from death to life, brokenness to wholeness, hurt to healing. He wants to unleash the fullness of his life in your life. But that requires faith. And faith is always more than just agreeing with evidence. It's coming to a place where we trust and believe not just about Jesus, but Jesus. You don't just need facts, you need a relationship. And Jesus basically gave you a very important message. He said, you're in trouble. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, and you're in trouble with God. But I'm here to fix that. I will die in your place so you can be forgiven. I will rise for you so you can stand in my new life. And all I ask is that you trust me that you simply believe in me. You guys, it will change your life. So moving into response, I want to put some questions on the screen to to lead us as we go into our response time. First of all, what evidence do you find most compelling? What gripped you? Maybe this morning or in the text itself, what, what evidence maybe rattles your cage the most or comforts your heart the most? Secondly, what questions still remain that you need to dig into? What questions that you're looking at saying, Man, I really need to dig into that and do some heavy lifting on my own. I need to I need to study into that further. Thirdly, do you want this stuff to be true? Or do you really not want it to be true? At least be honest with your own heart on this because you're not going to be anywhere in between. There is no unbiased observer. You will either want this to be true or you'll want it not to be true. And if you want it not to be true, at least be honest about that. Like the Pharisees, you'll find, you'll always find excuses not to believe, right? And if you want it to be true, you're going to dig into this with the purpose of proving it to be true. You're going to come one way or the other. My question is, if you don't want it to be true, why don't you want it to be true? <laughs> i am bet you back next week. Next week, we're actually going to be looking at that. I'm, I'm going to basically be telling you why you should really hope this is true because this is incredible news. This is like the best news ever. You really should want this to be true, and and if you're not there, I hope you do come back next week so we can unpack that a little bit more. All right, so we'll go into our Tower of Response. During this time, we're also going to take our offering. This is a chance for our members and regular attenders to give um, joyfully and sacrificially as we continue to push the gospel out into this community through our local church. We partner together as a community to help fund that and make that happen. Um, and so I encourage you to give joyfully and in worship. If you're a guest with us, please give us the worship response card that's in your bulletin. We'd love to know you were here. Just fill it out and drop it in the basket when it comes around. All of you, if you have prayer requests, fill those out and drop those in. I pray over those, and the leadership team prays over those every week, and we would love to pray with you and for you. So just drop that in the basket as well. If you're a, uh, if you weren't here last week and you didn't get one of the raised books, we gave one to each family. Um, they are by the door on your way out. Please grab one of those um, and just take it as our our gift to you, as a blessing to you. If you're a first time guest with us, um, go to connection point. We have a gift for you there as well. We're not we're not going to get creepy. We're not going to follow you. We just want to honor you for for coming and visiting. Let me pray for us. We'll go into our time of response. Father God, I thank you that um, Lord, you are. Um, man, so much greater than our ability to analyze and understand. That while everything you tell us and you do for us is perfectly reasonable, you call us to faith, with, which ultimately is a, a very heart level and act of trust. Where we simply say we trust you more than we trust ourselves. We trust that your solution is better than our solution. We trust that your way is better than our way. We trust that that Jesus is a better Savior than we are for ourselves. We trust ultimately that you'll tell a better story for our lives than we would tell for ourselves. I pray, Lord, that you would awaken within our hearts that kind of faith, not just that we would be able to argue about this stuff, not just that we would be able to win some verbal battle, but that we would be radically, deeply transformed by it that we wouldn't just know about you, we would know you. So Father, I pray for my friends and I pray for my own heart that you would awaken us to the beauty of your son. We do thank you that you sent Jesus to live the life we should have lived and die the death we deserve to die so that when he rose again, we could be invited into forgiveness and wholeness and new life.